0: What are your New Year's resolutions? Perhaps you'd like to be, eat a bit healthier, save more money, exercise a, a bit more regularly, spend less time on social media, spend more time with family, or maybe it's just to finally fix that leaky pipe underneath your kitchen sink. There's always a lot of buzz this time of year around resolutions. How do we make this next year better than the last year? What goals do we want to accomplish this year? What mistakes from last year would we like not to repeat? There's even a whole lineup of self-help books set to release this month for the occasion. In fact, the self-help industry is exploding in growth. Just over the past 10 years, the number of self-help books in print has tripled. One market researcher comments, people are yearning for meaning peace, and calm in today's somewhat chaotic culture. And they're looking for ways to slow down and unplug. Amazon has 28 subcategories of self-help books, ranging from happiness, anxieties and phobias, dreams, new age, personal transformations, hypnosis, to emotions. But even with the overabundance of self-help support, Studies show that on average only 10% of American adults actually keep their New Year's resolutions. 25% falling off the wagon within the first week. And then nearly 50% within the first month. Now, I don't mean to throw shade at our good intentions and our resolutions tonight. And our, uh, our, our good intentions of taking stock of our lives and setting goals. But there seems to me an easily misguided aim in all of our measuring, our modeling, our quantifying, and our idealizing our futures. In an article entitled Improving Ourselves to Death, Alexandra Schwartz, a journalist, writes, in our current era of nonstop technological innovation, fuzzy wishful thinking has yielded to the hard doctrine of personal optimization Self-help gurus need not be charlatans peddling snake oil. Many are psychologists with impressive academic pedigrees and a commitment to scientific methodologies. Or they're tech entrepreneurs with inviolable records of success in life and business. What they're selling is metrics. It's no longer enough to imagine our way to a better state of body or mind. We must now chart our progress, count our steps, log our sleep rhythms, tweak our diets, record our negative thoughts, and then analyze the data, recalibrate, and repeat. In today's culture, I think we are at risk of judging ourselves and bringing our lives under the rule of these metrics and slipping into uh, self-obsession and self-contempt and discouragement when we can't make the cut when we can't live up to the promise of a better self. We are at risk of succumbing to this self-help culture that breeds discontent, unrest, and feelings of inadequacy. But scripture testifies that we are flawed beyond self-repair and that there are things in our lives tonight that we can only be delivered from, no matter how much we optimize or order our lives. And so my aim this evening is to guide us through the word of God outside of ourselves and turn our attention to Jesus. So this evening I want to discuss the shocking obedience of Jesus our Lord and the freedom of his gospel. I'd like to turn to the gospel text from Luke 2 and look at just one verse, verse 21. We read, At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Today, in the liturgical year, we pay particular attention to the circumcision in the name of Jesus. The law of Moses required that every male be circumcised on the eighth day. So it was traditionally a festive occasion when family and friends would gather around to witness the naming of the Son. And so it became a Christian tradition to mark this event in Jesus' life, the eighth day after Christmas, January 1st. But if we're being honest tonight, what does the circumcision of Jesus mean to us? So I hope to show you that rather than just being a mere religious custom or a historical point of interest in the life of Christ, Jesus' circumcision is bursting with theological significance and relevance for us. So first, I want to see how it demonstrates the shocking obedience of Jesus. Throughout Luke's gospel, he is striving to show the historical reality, the unmistakable, verifiable fact of Jesus' true humanity. Luke states in the first verses of his gospel that having followed all things closely for a time, he now intends to write an orderly account of things that he's seen. Luke then goes out of his way to show geographical and historical references to what he is saying, to show the authenticity of who Jesus was. He writes things like, in the days of Herod, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus when Corinius was governor of Syria. Jesus' circumcision reiterates the historical fact of Jesus' humanity. For we know that divine spirits don't have circumcisions. Gnostic ghosts don't have reproductive organs. Jesus was a Jewish boy circumcised just like other Jewish boys. But Jesus was a little different than the other Jewish boys. For he is also the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And this is where the theological significance lies. Jesus, God in the flesh, submitted himself to the law of Moses. For part of his calling was to fulfill what God's chosen people could never do. Perfectly obey God's law in its entirety. Jesus, through whom all things on heaven and earth were created, was circumcised according to the law. The eternal word of God condescended to identify with his people and to perfectly obey the law for our sake. And this obedience led all the way to his cross, for his blood spilled at his circumcision foreshadowed the very blood he would spill at his cross by which he would reconcile all things to his father. Jesus offered himself so that we may now find ourselves in him. This is the shocking obedience of Jesus. So my second point tonight is I want to look at the freedom of the gospel. How does Jesus' perfect obedience relate to us and the freedom we now find in him? Taking a step back and looking theologically at what circumcision was, we know that it was a central sign and theological theme throughout the Old Testament. It marked the assurance of God's promise to bless Israel and ultimately all people, all nations, through his covenant with Abraham. Circumcision did not magically bring these blessings about, but was the sign of God's initiative towards Israel he marked them and all their generations as set apart, as his own. Meaning was not merely in the physical act, but in the promise of God and in the faith of Israel. So the importance of this covenantal sign for Israel was the very reason we see it being a struggle for the early church and throughout the New Testament. The early church was trying to figure out what circumcision now meant and what it meant to be a member of God's people after the coming of Christ. This was a completely understandable dilemma for Jewish believers not to know how to fit these two things together. For we know from Genesis that it was the mandatory sign of belonging to God. In Genesis it it states, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh shall be cut off from his people for he has broken my covenant. And so we read in the book of Acts some in the early church were taking this concept of circumcision and what it meant for God's people throughout the narrative of scripture and they were teaching that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved. And so this led to the apostles and the elders of the early church gathering together and having a theological conference in Jerusalem to get to the bottom of this specific problem. And this is where it becomes crucial for us. The apostles and the elders came to the very conclusion that the theological function of circumcision had been accomplished in Christ. That now Jews and Gentiles would be saved by the same grace of Jesus. The circumcision of Christ is now the justifying act of God in which all of our sins and failures, to meet the law's demands, are nailed to the cross. God has cut us off from our old self, our fleshly union, our binding with Adam, and he has recreated us. We are now buried and we've been risen with Christ through our faith in him. Paul writes to the church in Galatia from what we read this evening on this precise issue. Paul writes that if you accept circumcision as a saving sign, a belonging, of being included in the church, then Christ will have absolutely no advantage, no value for you. You are then bound instead to keep the whole law, being severed therefore from Christ and all of his benefits. But scripture testifies that Christ came to Israel and to us to release us from this very predicament, For we read tonight, for when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The resounding message of Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, to Galatia, is that because Jesus bore the curse of the law, perfectly obeying it and bearing all the consequences of lawbreaking, we here tonight can now come to God by faith in Him alone. And this gospel liberates us from the burdens of law keeping and sin counting and holiness measuring and endlessly comparing ourselves to others. For we are now set free for freedom in Jesus to love. And serve our neighbors with the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. Looking at the second half of our verse tonight, we read that at his circumcision, he was named Jesus. For as the angel proclaimed to Mary in in chapter 1 of Matthew, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means simply Savior. The Lord saves. Of all the attributes and characteristics of our Lord, he is named above all as the one who saves us from our sins. The grace of God shines through the very name of our Lord, for it is the name above every name, and the name by which every knee on earth and in heaven will one day bow. So to close up this evening, as Christians... We are in a particular place of privilege to claim all truth as our own. All truth belongs to God. So we can therefore read any self-help book off the shelf. We can gather all the insights from psychology, sociology, philosophy, biology, and every sphere of human knowledge. We can glean wisdom from rules of life, methods to form amazing habits, magical guidance on tidying up and organizing your life or motivation to lead a disciplined and focused life perhaps like a navy seal for who doesn't want health peace or, uh, order stability these are things we might we we should not reject but we must not sacrifice the freedom of Christ's gospel for the slavery of our own self-improvement projects we must subject all these endeavors to the God who has bled and died to make us his own. God has kept his covenant, his unbreakable gracious resolution that we could never keep. True freedom, true help can only come from the outside, not in the modern search of self. The true medicine we most desperately need tonight is Christ who delivers us from our sins saves us from our bondage, and sets us free to love our neighbors. For it is this very reason that our Lord is named Jesus. C.S. Lewis ended his classic book, Mere Christianity, with these words 70 years ago this year. I'll end my sermon with them tonight. He writes, Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred Loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Amen.